Coming up this hour, we're going to talk about some Kyle Rittenhouse news out of Kenosha. And then for the rest of the hour, Dr. Jeff Stark from Olivet Nazarene University. You're listening to The Common Good. Hey, everyone. Welcome to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. A couple of things that you're probably tired of hearing me say, but I'm going to say it anyway. You can find us on Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show. We got a lot of lively debate, at least maybe not debate, but there's some lively commenting going on over there. If you want to catch the action, you can also send us private messages if that's more your jam. You can also find us at Instagram and Twitter at Common Good Talk, 1160hope.com slash the common good. And wherever it is, you get podcasts. It could be Apple, Spotify, doesn't matter. All of those platforms let you subscribe, rate and review. And all of that is like giving us a big digital hug. It helps us out so much. Any interaction anywhere kind of helps the algorithm and make the show more visible for more people. And uh, we totally, completely and utterly appreciate that, especially for those of you who have already done that. Brian, before we dive into uh, a pretty tough story, a pretty messy one, uh, how's your day? Yeah, my day is going well. There was these strange water droplets falling from the sky today. I forgot that those existed. What's it been like a month since it rained? And uh, yeah, I was outside doing some stuff and all of a sudden I'm like, what is this? So anyway, uh, no, my day is going well, man. I'm having an enjoyable day. How about you? Uh, did you run in the rain today? Oh, not yet. It is. Uh, it's a weird day. I had a bunch of other things scheduled and buttoned up against each other. But uh, I am happy to announce, though, and this is real. Today is National Chicken Boys Day, and I don't know what that means. I was going to say, well, I thought you were moving on. I'm like, wait, what is that? What could that possibly be? Hopefully, we didn't just get no. ourselves in trouble. <laughs> you know what? Yeah, gosh, hopefully not. I thought this site was clean. Let's move on regardless, just to be safe. I want to talk about this story, and we're probably going to need more than a segment sometime in the future to really take a deep dive. But uh, here's one of the headlines. I got a, a few links in here. Christian fundraising site has earned over $250,000 for alleged Kenosha shooter Kyle Rittenhouse. What is going on here? Like you said, it's a, it's a weird story. It is a confusing story. But basically, uh, as the protests and got you know very heated a couple nights ago in Kenosha, <clears throat> I'm sure we've all seen the story now of the 17-year-old from Antioch, Illinois, by the name of Kyle Rittenhouse, uh, who decided he needed to go. He said, uh, our job is to protect this business and, or these businesses. And so this 17-year-old went up into the middle of the protests and there was uh, this clash and he ended up killing two people, injuring another, uh, has been arrested. And uh, but now it's this weird. Um, it's hard to explain, right? This backing that people are going again. Uh, believe what you want, whether it was self-defense or this or that. He clearly broke the law at the very least by bringing a gun across state lines. But uh, he's become a bit of a cult hero. And I find that really confusing. But I do think what I'm learning is that that there are a lot more people out there who think things that I think are really friends. And I'm like, well, maybe there's more than I thought. And so now there's a Christian, basically, version of GoFundMe, which I also didn't know existed, a Christian fundraising site that decided to raise money for him. And it's gotten over $200,000 raised to it right now. And again, people could give money to whatever they want. Uh, people can believe, you know, whatever they want here, but it just seems really odd to me that this is the uh, groundswell of support that Kyle Rittenhouse 
is is getting not just some support, but now it's up over two hundred and fifty thousand dollars from a fundraising site that very explicitly uh, calls itself Christian. And so it's just a conf- I don't understand it. I, it makes me uh, angry. It kind of disappoint. But but the more so I'm like, I don't can't even get where you're coming from, that you feel this passionate to give money uh, in support of him. And so it's a, I find it to be a dishearteningly confusing story. Okay, so I, I want to uh, ask you more about the anger emotion specifically. What about it makes you angry? I, I totally understand the complexities of feeling confused and trying to because I've heard a bunch of other uh, accounts regarding the legality of him owning a weapon or the kind of weapon, Illinois versus Wisconsin, self-defense aspects of him running while being attacked. And so legally, the the one chasing him would be more all that kind of stuff. I, I completely understand. Yep. Confusion part of it. I want to hone in a little bit on the anger part. What's what's kind of beneath that for you? So I didn't grow up as a gun person. I've sh- I've shared that on the store uh, the the show here before. I've literally shot a gun like once in my life. Like and, okay. and so I don't get the gun culture. And I'm going to put that out there. Does it mean I'm anti Second Amendment, pro Second Amendment, whatever? I'm just not. I didn't grow up in a culture of guns. And so uh, when I see a 17 year old with a gun strapped around him that's almost bigger than himself, along with his mother, who is strapped with the exact same gun, basically, driving across state lines, thinking that it's going to do something good, and then two people end up dead. Uh, again, uh, was it self-defense? Was there uh, was there a, a mitigated circumstances? I don't know, except that it just makes me angry that this family decided, like, we've got to go do this, because it it was clear this was going to escalate. And so for me, it's more like, what are we as a culture where this kind of thing is going on? Like, it feels like we're devolving as a culture uh, right before our eyes. And then just the fact that, I mean, in the end, he did kill two people and he might get off for it. And and then if our court systems say he deserves to get off, okay, you know, we'll, we'll listen to those arguments and whatever else. It's just the rush to get to turn him also into a bit of a cult hero with hashtags, free Kyle, and also this amount of money is, is a bit staggering to me. And so it, 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 to me, it kind of shines a light on some of our priorities culturally that I find a, a little bit um, strange, to say the least. And so it, all of that. But to be honest with you, man, it's just the fact of a 17-year-old with a gun that big is kind of the beginning of what makes me angry in the story. Okay, so what about that makes you angry? I, if he's if he's legally allowed to own a gun, and it's just simply its bigness that makes you uncomfortable, is is that justified? You're probably not. But you're going to get me in trouble with all of our uh, deeply conservative friends here. I'm just not a gun person. I I have a hard time. Who I'm really going to get people mad here. I have a hard time with the with the whole concept that anybody needs an AR-15. And the amount of damage it's done culturally, school shootings and other things. I get that that's my thing. People will want to write and disagree. Uh, but you can almost see it coming. Like you can see that there was going to be trouble and going to be problems. And uh, it, this seemed avoidable. And a lot of what's going on culturally violence wise seems avoidable from both sides. But it's just it's all just going crazy right now the the tension is so high you add guns to it and it's not a surprise that people died it's not a surprise that a guy got shot in portland the other day it's not a surprise that various people are getting shot it just makes me really sad and you just want to go can't we can do better than this and i know there's people screaming from both ends here's what the other side's doing that's causing this i get it i do i get it it just makes me sad for where we're at culturally right now 
Well, and it looks like too one of the one of the guys he shot actually pulled a gun on him, yeah. right? Yeah. Now they they thought that he they had you know he had just murdered one of their friends. It's it is really really messy. You you did mention the Facebook page. I want to at least give a nod to that because we do really read these and often read them on the air. So uh, so David said everyone should have a good defense, and until all the facts are in, uh, we need to withhold judging him or this group, which is a, a comment we get a lot. Um, Michael said, when we asked, you know, should Christian organizations raise funds like this? Michael said, absolutely not. This, I believe, is a slap in the face of Christ followers. Ken, Debbie, Maggie, Carl all said no. Uh, Isaac, though, said, is posting this article and posing that question actually doing any good for the situation? Instead of asking potentially divisive questions, speak out against the violence in our streets. Call your congregations to do more and be better. Not that I'm saying they aren't. You both are wiser than I am on the Bible, so use that Bible or that biblical wisdom to shine God's light onto the dark situation. I'm not trying to be antagonistic, just my thoughts on the matter, which I totally appreciate. Mm -hmm. And that's something that Brian and I are trying to do with the show. We're not trying to raise divisive questions. We know that people will be divided on certain topics, but the hope is that we can then use this space to at least get, engage in some kind of dialogue. And like I mentioned at the beginning of this segment, there's probably going to be a whole lot more reading that Brian and I need to do. It seems like there's a lot of confusion around, confusion around some of the specific laws and what justifies self-defense. At the very least, just as we wrap up this segment, it grieves me. It yes. grieves me. I, I wish he wasn't there in the first place at all. It grieves me that we see violence in the streets, but it also grieves me that we have such systemic injustice that we don't know what to do about. It just grieves me to multiple levels and uh that's kind of the point that i'm at right now yes and uh and maybe throughout the the rest of this week or next we'll take a deeper dive and uh and try to parse some of that for you coming up next associate professor of theology at the school of theology and christian ministry and the director for center of theological leadership at olivet nazarene university dr jeff stark is going to join us for the rest of the hour and we're going to talk all things missiological evangelical Theology. That's coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm, and I am absolutely thrilled to have for the rest of the hour, Jeff Stark. Welcome for the first time, hopefully not the last time, to The Common Good, sir. Hey, what a gift it is to be here and be present with y'all. This is oh, great. Thanks, man. I appreciate I mean, we'll we'll figure out if it actually was a gift for you. At the end. <laughs> but, uh, fingers crossed. I'm wondering, could you, could you just take a, a minute or two or five if you want and just introduce yourself to our audience? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so I, I should probably start where, where things really matter. Uh, so I'll say I'm a husband and a, and a father first. Smart. Uh, so uh, <laughs> been married for 22 years, and I didn't even have to think about that long. I just kind of jumped. That was there. <laughs> And I was able to roll with it, so I feel pretty good about that. Um, I have two sons. One just turned 21, and the other one is 20. Both of them attend Olivet Nazarene University. Uh, One is a military science criminal justice major, and the other one is a missions major. So uh, both of them are doing really well. Uh, We are empty nesters uh, by age 45, so... Uh, that's not a that's not a bad deal right there. You know, we got none of the front end honeymoon season, so we just saved it all for the back end. That, that was our uh, that was our hope. So, uh, I I uh, uh, a little bit about myself. Grew up in Ohio. Um, went to college in Columbus, uh, Ohio. Then joined the military right after uh, right after college, and uh, wasn't uh, just in terms of personally how this shapes my my own story. Uh, I didn't grow up in a religious background at all. Uh, mm-hmm. So uh, when I when I went into the military, 
I deployed to Kosovo and Macedonia, and it was there uh, that I had a pretty radical encounter with God, and, and, and God sort of changed my life at the very core of who I was. And so that sent me on a completely, and I'd say all that to say that it just sent me on a completely different trajectory. Uh, my mind was set. I was like, I was going to head towards like the FBI or the U.S. Marshals or something in that direction. And God said, No, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, te- I'm gonna send you into the incredibly profitable work of ministry. Um, and so, so uh, I started in after I got out of the military. I was a part-time pastor and a part-time checkout clerk at a Shoney's restaurant. And uh, if there was nothing that said you had made it at 25, it was. Uh, running busboy for people on Memorial Day at, uh, at Shoney's Restaurant. That was a, that was a great joy <laughs> wow. of my life. Uh, uh, served as a pastor in Clarksville, Tennessee uh, for about seven years, filled a variety of different associate roles. Uh, went on to pastor, lead pastor, a, a church in a small rural community uh, in Tennessee. The town itself was about 2,000. The county itself was 8,000. Wow. Uh, had, had just a remarkable remarkable time there. I was a privileged to pastor one of the most gracious communities of faith that I could have ever imagined in my mm. first lead pastorate. Mm. Um, they were, they were some of the most salt of the earth kind of folks. Um, uh, a church just filled uh, with a variety of different ages. I mean, they had made a commitment to over a hundred year span to just continue to, to reinvest in the children in the community. And that was proving itself just in the, in the life that they had in that church. Mm-hmm. Um, Left there in 2014 and went on to uh, pastor Bridgeway Community Church in Pekin, Illinois, uh, where I pastored there for about five years. And then during all of those years, I was uh, collecting degrees and and had an amazingly gracious wife who put up with one Mm -hmm. program after another uh, and then finally finished my doctorate in 2017. And as I was sort of leaning in pretty hard into what we were doing there at Bridgeway, all of it, Nazarene University called and said, would you be interested in coming on faculty with us? Uh, we're looking for someone uh, in your area of study. And and it just sort of, you know, everything aligned. And I, w- I was able to sort of work it out at first where I was going to stay at Bridgeway, which was about two hours from Olivet, and then uh, also teach. And I was going to hand things off to my my campus pastors. And, and then I got an opportunity to come and move to the city of Chicago and mm. uh, really sort of settle into the city and 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 work out my area of emphasis, which is in missional theology mm. within the context of a large urban environment. And uh, my, my wife and I, again, two sons out of the house, able to move into a 900 square foot wow. uh, condo from about a 2,500 square foot house. <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, we had to sell everything and, and, but it yep. was just, a, it was a perfect moment for us. And so we arrived in the city in May of 2019 and uh, have been doing work in the city and then also uh, teaching ever since then. Wow, that's awesome. I'm sure moving from rural to the city, the third of uh, of the square footage was also a third of the price, I'm sure. so <laughs> Yeah, I'll tell you, know, it's funny. I, I will say this, and, and this is no joke. When I was in Tennessee and we had a house in rural Tennessee, uh, I mean, it was, it, was, it was a house. That one was about 2,000 square foot. We sat on an acre. Our yearly property tax is seven hundred dollars. <laughs> seven hundred dollars. Yeah, it's crazy. Uh, so, so, Jeff, part of your story before that I can't just skip over is that you said uh, that God radically saved you in the military. Little Reader's Digest version. I, I really want to hear what happened there. 
Yeah. So, uh, any church I experienced, I really had was up until about 10 years old and it was very, very sort of inconsistent. Um, and then from about 10, 10 years old to about 25, uh, there was really nothing. Wasn't interested in it. It became a, uh, diehard atheist for a while. And then I had a praying grandma who at least got me to dial the notch to agnosticism at one point. <laughs> um, but in the midst of that, I had developed a series of significant compulsions and addictions. Mm. Um, when I was my first party at, uh, at the school that I was going to, I was also a football player and a, a fraternity guy. I got rip roaring drunk and everybody thought I was the, the, the funny drunk guy. And so that became my identity for four years of college. Hmm. And it, it just rolled into a series of dysfunctions. And then my wife and I met at a club on my 21st birthday. Um, and so we thought two alcoholic clubbers <laughs> bringing their lives together would make for a really functional relationship. Uh, when it, what really happened was for three years, uh, we just lived in a very destructive life. Mm. Uh, God rescued us from, from divorce uh, several times. Wow. A couple of times, my sons that were being born at the time were instrumental in that. Uh, but when I was in Macedonia and Kosovo, my wife and I, having been at this point separated for three months uh, with the deployment, we had made the decision when I got back, uh, it was over. I was done. We were going to get a divorce. And uh, it just shattered me. The thought, about, the thought of being away from my sons just was more than I could handle. And so uh, what ended up happening was uh, one night I got back from the work I was doing. Uh, it was about midnight. I had just cr climbed into my rack and, and I, I kept hearing this voice, get up and go to the chapel. Mm -hmm. And so finally I succumbed and I got up and I went to the chapel. I was sitting in a chapel at midnight all by myself. And something that I wasn't looking for came and found me. And uh, I, I felt in my spirit, I don't know if I heard audibly, but it was as real as I'm sitting here. Uh, if you turn your life over to me, I'll rescue you, your family, uh, and, and you'll give me the rest of your life. Mm. If not, everything falls apart from here. Wow. And uh, that night, um, in whatever way I knew how to, I just yielded. And I went from being just the ringleader of debauchery in our platoon to someone who was then spending two hours a day reading the Bible. And it was, it was just absolutely radical. And, and it was truly the only, only the grace of God that could do that. Yeah. Wow. wow. Well, in the business, we call that a segue because coming up next, I want to ask you how in the world you went from the story you just told to becoming a professor of theology here in Chicago. <laughs> so that's coming up next with Jeff Stark here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins along with Brian Fromm. And we just heard a pretty wild conversion story. And I sometimes I feel like even the word conversion doesn't fully give like the weight and gravity mm. of what you just told. I'd love to know now then, if you wouldn't mind sharing, how did you go from that story where it felt like everything was on the brink of collapse to then becoming a pastor and now a professor? Yeah, that's a great question. So I, I'd probably say two things uh, right from the get-go. One would be, Earl, and I'll come back, I'll circle back around and explain what I mean by that. Hmm. Um, and the second thing I would be that I would say is that I had, I was privileged when I first came to faith to find myself in an incredibly missional church that made room for two, two young people who were brand new to the faith and who were still kind of a hot mess. Hmm. And they just, they just made space for us and they took seriously this Jesus thing, that was probably one of the things that I knew when I, when we set about to look for a church, 
Um, we had we both had too many weaknesses to try to, to try to just do this Sunday only Christianity. We knew that if we were going to be in any way significant, effective, or successful in this journey of Jesus following, it was going to have to be a twenty four hour day, seven day a week kind of thing. Mm. And we found a church that that took that seriously. And uh, they came alongside us and immediately began to invest in us. And that, that's what brings me back to Earl. Earl was a 45-year-old layperson in the church. And Earl had a passion uh, for lost people and for helping people who, who, who didn't know the hope that was found in Jesus come not only to a place of decision, but to disciple them into the fullness of the life of following Jesus. And so he just kind of eyed us out as soon as we arrived. Hmm. And after just a couple months of being there, this 45-year-old layperson who spent his days climbing electric poles um, said to us, hey, would you mind if I came over to your house and we just started talking about the Bible? And he was talking about discipleship, but I was still trying to develop a terminology for that. Yeah. And, and so Thursday nights, this is no joke, for Thursday nights for months and months and months, he would come over at 9 p.m. at night after our kids had gone to bed. He'd go through the whole rigmarole of getting on post uh, the military post we're at, and he would stay with us sometimes till 11 or 12 o'clock at night, wow, wow. just pouring out his life into ours. And he gave me such a vision and a, and a hope for not only my own personal transformation, but for the kind of difference that we could make if we invest in others. Hmm. Now, when I, when I first, when I first sort of made my decision to follow Jesus, I knew that God had asked me to give, give my whole life to him. And I didn't want to be the brand new Christian who just, you know, leaps out and says, I'm going to pastor because I want to save the world. I didn't want to be that guy. I thought, okay, I need to settle into this thing. I need to make sure that this, this is going to stick before I start running my mouth. Mm-hmm. Um, and so after a period of time, uh, it just became evident that I had to start letting people know. And again, this church that I was a part of, just gracious. Um, they made space for me on staff after only being a Christian for two years they said, wow. come on part time. And I still laugh at my my pastor who is who's now moved on. He's in a different role of leadership. And I said, what were you thinking? <laughs> um, and uh, and he said, man, I was he saw I saw your passion, your energy, your your conviction about who Jesus was. And he said, I was just giving you a place to perch. And I figured we'd work it out from there. And uh, and he stayed alongside of me. We had people stay alongside of us and walk with us. Uh, now I was 26 at this point. Uh, I had the GI Bill, and so I was I was in a conversation with a professor at Trevecca Nazarene University. He said, "You should come into our master's program." And and from there, I started taking this journey into theological education, mm. and I and I fell in love not with the abstraction of it, but with the richness and texture that good theology can bring to the life of a congregation and to the, our witness of faith when it comes to the kingdom of God. Mm-hmm. And I was introduced to a journey of following Jesus, introduced to people like you know Dietrich Bonhoeffer and Dorothy Day and these lives of these people, uh, James Cone, people whose, whose theology shapes, forms, and transforms how we understand our lives in the world in which we live. And, and, and I just, I just, I couldn't get enough of it. So I was working out my ministry as I was doing my theology. I never did any of my degrees sort of isolated and sort of, you know, at the academy alone. I, I always did them as a part of a congregation because I always felt like theology should, theology should matter, not for just those who are, you know, in the ivory tower, but for those. Right. Who, and, and I don't buy into this whole, you know, let's keep the cookies on the bottom shelf. 
I really believe our people that sit in the congregations every single week, they want to know, they want to grow, they want to go deeper, they want to believe that what they're giving themselves to matters. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, so just being able to, to pastor that way. Now, that doesn't mean I didn't run up against some challenges and some moments when my theology didn't necessarily align with people who had power right. and all of that goes with that. I mean, there's, there's, there's those pieces, but all of it was forged in the midst of this, this missional church uh, who invested in this young couple. And, and then we were just thankful enough that mm-hmm. throughout our journey, uh, we've just been in churches that have made space for us, allowed us to lead, allowed us to, to say really hard things, allowed us to, to breach topics that, you know, we're not supposed to talk about in those places and to do so in a way that I, that hopefully prayerfully uh, was, 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 was shepherding in some direction, but missional always. Yeah. And, uh, and so when I, when I went into my doctorate, and I'll, I'll cut this short here, but uh, when I went to my doctor, I just knew missional theology was where I wanted to be because the intersection of the church and the world and what that means for the kingdom of God to me, that's, that's where we need to be as the church right now. Hmm. What is it? Why do, why does our existence as the church matter in a world that is hurt and broken? And, and, and what do we have to offer that world, um, which I believe to be the witness to this kingdom of God that is, that is a hope that, that is almost inexplicable, uh, but that we, we give, we're given permission to point to. That's awesome. Thanks so much for telling your story, Jeff. I'm curious for people out there, you know, those of us who are pastors and stuff, we know what you mean by missional and this and that, but some people out there might be like, oh, I've heard that kind of used in a bad way, a good way. How would you just kind of define missional theology and missional church as you know it? Yeah. So uh, for me, the mission is is very simple. Um, It's the mission of the church is to bear witness to the coming kingdom of God in word and deed. That that who we are, how we exist, is is being sent into this world as good newsers. Um, you know, we we talk a lot in the church about evangelism. I think evangelism is very simply just good newsing. And what is the good news that Jesus talks about? The good news is that the kingdom is at hand. Right? Yeah. It's it's so close we can almost touch it. Mm, right. And we've been commissioned as the church not to just gather in spaces. Not to just gather and have um, our spiritual needs met, not to just consume and, and you know, community Christians uh, messaging this week talked about the difference uh, between being a contributor and a consumer, not just being a consumer of, of religious goods, but to but to instead uh, be someone who is actively engaged and invested in the world. That, that believes that this kingdom means that the, that the hungry are fed, that the naked are clothed. That the sick and the, those in prison are are visited. Uh, that that the inequalities we see that's the kingdom of God. I mean, when you talk right. about the mission of God, the kingdom of God is God's right making of the world. Yeah. It's where the wounds of the world are bound up and healed. It's where it's where the mourning of the world finds a shoulder to weep upon and mm-hmm. lament with, and someone who will stand in the midst of the fray and the brokenness with. That's what we're called to. The mm-hmm. gathering is great as long as the gathering serves the purpose of the scattering of the church into the world. Those other six days of the week for pur- for the purposes of mi- bearing witness to that kingdom of God. Hmm. Are, are you sure you were a preacher at one point? <laughs> <laughs> I'm about to give my life to Jesus all over again. Man. 
<laughs> Holy cow, that was really good. Okay, I got to stop you there because we got to take a break. But coming up next, though, here's what I want to ask you about. I want to ask you about adaptive leadership through complexity. This is something that Brian and I have talked a lot about in the last six months. I'd love to pick your brain. Coming up next year on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins along with Brian Fromm. And we're joined one more segment. By, do I call you Dr. Stark? I can't believe I haven't called you that <laughs> once yet. Yeah. <laughs> Jeff works well. <laughs> I just want people to know that, you know, you could you could require it if you wanted to. But uh, telling us just, I think, a remarkable story of your life and interaction with the gospel and what it means to live into the kingdom of God. And you posted this, uh, I guess it's a few weeks ago. I want to just read it and then kind of get some of your thoughts on this. So this is these are your words on your Facebook page. He says that this, this is from a lecture that you're writing on adaptive leadership through complexity. You wrote, when our organizational why is defined by crisis or scarcity, the implementation of change is only momentarily motivating. Crisis and scarcity simply serve as forces to compel us to return again to our original why, the guiding vision, the clarifying picture, the locus of passion and excitement. By returning to the original why, we find the resources and resilience to engage crisis and scarcity in compelling creative and hope-filled ways. Could you unpack that a little more for us? Why did you write that? What does that really mean for us right here and now? You know, it's funny when you hit, when you hear something like that back to yourself, you're thinking, who wrote that? I've got to write that down. Right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's uh, good, man. Yeah. yeah. So, so here's, here's, I tend to, I tend to be one who looks for opportunities instead of threats. And so hmm. um, as, as I have navigated uh, the years of being a pastor and now as a theologian who spends a lot of time, one of the components of what I do is I coach young leaders quite a bit. And uh, I tend to find that the church, for some reason, consistently finds itself in uh, in threat, in, in this crisis of, of, oh, my goodness, the world has changed. It doesn't look like it used to. People aren't coming as easily as they used to. The finances and resources aren't there. The opportunities aren't there. The world's against us. Right. And it feels like, it feels like, man, we're, we're just sort of living in this, this, uh, this ever repetitive chicken little scenario where the mm-hmm. world is, the sky is falling and things aren't bad. Things aren't good. And, and it's, it's in those moments of crisis that the church then goes, okay, what are we doing? Why, why are we supposed to be doing this? And, and, they allow crisis to lead the way. Now, I think crisis can be a disruptive, reorienting moment, but it can't be the determiner of where we go from here. Uh, because I don't think people are motivated long-term by just fixing what is broken. Hmm. I think they want to lean into a vision of what could be. What is worth giving my life away to? Not, not, as what, not what might save this institution or this church or whatever we're dealing with here, but what is worth the, the, the very the very sacrifice of my life, my time, my energy, my resources, in what ways can I use the gift of God that he is that he has placed in my life? And so for me, I, I think I think whatever this crisis is, it invites us back into the heart of what we're called to be as the church, not only in the Gospels, but in the book of Acts and then throughout the New Testament. And, and I believe that that compelling vision, this church that doesn't that doesn't require uh, governmental legislation to exist. 
It doesn't require the comfort of our nice buildings. It doesn't require the, the, the bells and the whistles of the amazing services that we can produce. Literally, the church is this group of people, this movement, who've been brought together through the Spirit of God in the confession of the Lordship of Jesus. And that God has placed within his church the latent possibilities of creativity and imagination hmm. to lean out into this world and to believe that this world could still yet be what God desires it to be. I'm convinced that one of the biggest issues that we struggle with in the church is that we start in Genesis three. And that's a problem. Yeah. When you start with the brokenness, when you start with the pain, when you start with the problem, you, you theologize from that problem. But if we go back to Genesis one, this God who with this beautiful voice says, let it be. And it is in, and it's good is this God who longs to one day say it is good again. Mm. And, and it is, it is that, it is that the desire of God that should be the compelling force within the context mm. of the church. Oh, that's great. Jeff, I'm wondering uh, specifically COVID-19, this coronavirus pandemic, what are very specific ways, not just how has the church had to uh, change, but what are you hoping kind of the church comes out of COVID-19 looking different? What are some ways that you hope uh, that we look different after this? Yeah. Empowerment, empowerment and empowerment. Mm. Um, that is that is. I think it was the first week of COVID. I wrote a blog post uh, for several of the pastors that I know and, and said, you know, I know the, the, the tendency here is going to be jumping in to how can I create the best content? And, and that's not to say that content's not important. But here we've been given an opportunity to, to whether it's one on one or in small group, even if it's virtual to empower people to live out their fullness, to not just be dependent on the content creators who give us what we need on Sunday, but who see themselves the other six days a week. And I don't care if you're in a factory. I don't care if you're running a beat as a cop. I don't care if you're a teacher in a school or that you're having to do it virtually now, but you see yourself as a missionary ambassador of hope hmm. that, that you are an agent of reconciliation in this world. And that's really what I hope. I, I'm, I'm hoping we can break away from this tendency to see the church as a place to come to and more about seeing the church live out and go into the world, empowered to live out this gospel faithfully. I think that's probably key for me in this, mm. in this process. That's really good, man. This is pretty unfair to do and probably a big no-no in Radio World since we have like two minutes left. But another <laughs> post you made was about helping your students understand biblical justice and some of the tropes that are sort of thrown against any sort of articulation of a life that it feels like Jesus invites us to live. Could you just take a minute and a half, two minutes, speak to, to that topic a little bit? Yeah. And I think, I think it does just roll, roll together here pretty nicely. And that's, and that's this. Um, I think I would want to say this to those of us who are confessional Christians. Uh, when we talk about justice, when we talk about specifically biblical justice, we don't have to buy into the, the narratives that are being shared throughout the culture that, you know, that's some sort of diversion away from the gospel or that's somehow some sort of Marxist agenda or whatever, whatever, whatever terminology that wants to be thrown around. Biblical justice is the embodiment of the good, good news that we say we proclaim. Mm -hmm. Biblical justice is about the conditions in which the people that God has said, you are my image bearers can flourish in the way that God intended them to. 
that that's that's what biblical justice is about. It's about creating the kinds of conditions where the good news that we say that we proclaim is lived out daily in people's lives. And we can identify any space and place where there are barriers and obstacles to the flourishing that God has intended for the dignity of his image bearers. And we will get involved and get our hands messy to remove those barriers and obstacles in whatever way possible so that his people all people can flourish in the way that God intended them to. And we've got to get away from these, this bifurcation between, you know, the gospel, which is what we say, and then how we live. Right. Gospel proclamation and gospel activation mm. are two sides of the exact same coin, and they require one another. Man, that is how you end, <laughs> my man. That, that'll preach. Thank you so much for bringing the heat. That other voice you're hearing, by the way, is Dr. Jeff Stark, Associate Professor of Theology at the School of Theology and Christian Ministry and Director for Center for Theological Leadership at Olivet Nazarene University. Jeff, thank you so much, man, for taking the time to join us today. And after all this, I can still say it's a gift to be with you. <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> Thanks, man. The feeling is definitely mutual, brother. Appreciate it. You've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Coming up this hour, we're going to talk depression and suicide. Do men or women read the Bible more? And then we're going to talk a little more John MacArthur. You're listening to The Common Good. everyone. Welcome to Part Dose of the Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins along with Brian Fromm. You can find us a whole mess of places, a whole heap, a whole smorgasbord. They're all there. The podcast I'll begin with, anywhere you get podcasts, the Common Good Radio Show. If you subscribe, rate, and review, that helps us out a ton. You can also find us on Facebook. As you probably hopefully just heard, we do often read comments from the articles we share there, so feel free to weigh in there. Let's just keep it friendly. We know that sometimes the stuff that's shared there can be uh, controversial or at the very least get a bit heated, but we'd love for that to be a place where we can continue to dialogue even after the show about uh, the stuff we're talking about. And uh, you can also go to 1160hope.com slash the common good. If you want to learn more about the show, I don't know why this one struck me so much. I feel like we've talked a fair deal about uh, pastoral burnout and pastoral mental health stuff. Uh, You know, we talked about, Jared Wilson. We talked about Darren Patrick. I was just actually listening to a new podcast from Relevant called Called, and their very first episode was with John Mark Comer, and they're talking about um, soul care and spiritual direction mm-hmm. and therapy and anxiety and depression. And it just feels like I've been really proud of a number of churches and Christian leaders talking not just like openly about it, but also really wisely about it. And uh, we we did this story, but I wanted to share okay. the headline. I'll let I'll let Brian kind of. Get us into it. It says, wife of pastor who died by suicide shares journey of grief and hope. Quote, God doesn't waste pain. Why don't don't you get us into the story a little bit? Yeah, you may remember a long time ago, we referenced the story of Andrew. I believe his last name is Stokelin. I might be getting the last name wrong there. But uh, back in 2018, uh, he's 30-year-old megachurch pastor out of Chino, California, uh, who committed suicide. And now his wife, Kayla, uh, has written a book. Uh, kind of reflecting upon all of this. So let me just read some of this. She says she believes it's her God-given mission and calling to help remove the stigma about mental illness and suicide in the church. For a long time, she says, 
The church has seen mental illness as something that can be prayed away or healed if the person suffering spends enough time with God or surrounds themselves with people who have greater faith. Many believe that real Christians don't struggle with depression, anxiety, and suicidal thoughts, but that simply isn't true. Depression is a real physical illness, and there's a real chemical imbalance happening in the brain. It's something that the person suffering did not choose. She continues, as people that love Jesus, we're called to really love those walking in seasons of darkness, depression, anxiety, uh, and suicidal ideation. We need to lean in, ask questions, and really try to understand. Then we're able to treat that person with love, compassion, and empathy. It goes on to talk about her husband who just days before his own death, Andrew uh, delivered his last message titled Mess to Masterpiece, detailing his own experiences with depression and anxiety and the importance uh, of addressing it in the church. So I'll stop there. Like you said, we've talked a lot about this, but there's some real depth to this, isn't there? When these kind of words about mental health and depression and how the church needs to react is being written by a, a woman whose husband killed himself. And I'm sure, you know, it was, this had to be in a years, years and years and years of struggle that she was in the middle in with him. And so she's writing from a place of loss and pain and firsthand knowledge of uh, what her husband dealt with, but also maybe how the church or uh, how he, he was dealt with in the church and however else that might've gone. And so I think that adds not just relevance, but depth and importance to this book. Cause she's going, Hey, I've lived this. I know this. Uh, and let me tell you my story. Yeah. Let me just read a little bit more uh, from her own words. Cause I think they're really helpful again, yeah. because you, you know, you and I do a lot of stories that maybe we've not had personal experiences with. And I always want to be careful because there is a certain level of safety, you know, from a laptop in your basement where you're kind of talking about a topic versus someone who's like lived it or walked yeah. through it or is still living through it is maybe even a better way to talk about it. So what she said, I thought was was super fascinating and really helpful. She says, right after he died, I realized that suicide wasn't something that Andrew chose that night. It was the result of the underlying physical illness and deep pain that he was experiencing. I didn't understand what that pain felt like until after he died and I myself was struggling with suicidal thoughts. Wow. It's an overwhelming pain and it feels like the only way to make the pain go away is to die. She pointed out that the word suicide is often shrouded in shame, adding, when someone dies by suicide, the family doesn't even want to say the word. There's a misconception that those who die by suicide don't go to heaven. But I know that with Andrew, his acceptance into eternity didn't hinge on how he died. It hinged on his relationship with Jesus while he lived. Mm -hmm. uh, Stokeling shared how uh, after his father died from cancer in 2015, Andrew took on leadership of the megachurch. The family was soon forced to move. However, after threatening encounters with stalkers, Andrew developed Ooh. health complications, which led to a mental breakdown. He was subsequently forced by the elders of his church to take a four-month sabbatical. For Andrew, what began as occasional panic attacks morphed into severe, debilitating attacks and eventually an intense battle with depression. So I, I think that, at the very least, sh sharing all of those details to me, I think a lot of people will find very, very surprising, actually, especially yeah. for ministry families. For some reason, we've got it in our heads that like pastors and their families are like protected from these things. And I don't know if it's this sense of like, well, they're, you know, closer to God somehow. So they're like shielded from these things. And I don't know how many conversations, Brian, you've had with like personal pastors, but I feel like I'm not sure a month goes by that I don't have like a close personal pastoral friend. Yep. admit some like very real dark struggles and often ones that have been going on for a while. 
Yeah, you you touched on it, but there is this weird belief that that somehow pastors reach a a, a higher level, right, of of faith or Christianity that now they can be a pastor, right? And then those of us who are pastors, are like, oh, we know that's not the case. And yeah, right. I'm with you, man. I have those conversations. I, it's why I think it's so important. Uh, to have other pastors to talk to. I, I meet with a group of pastors every month. Very, uh, mm-hmm. It's kind of very religiously we, we meet, and I'm actually excited to meet with them tomorrow. Um, Stokeland here, she cites statistics that kind of back this up. She says, 50% of pastors feel unable to meet the needs of the job. 90% feel inadequately trained to deal with ministry demands. 45% of pastors say they've experienced depression or burnout yeah. to the extent that they needed to take a leave of absence. And 70% of pastors do not have someone they consider a close friend. Like That's the big one right there. Mm-hmm. It's the, I've got nobody to talk to. And she goes on to say, I can say that all of those statistics were true for Andrew saying that her husband felt like he carried the weight of the church and found it difficult to separate his personal and professional life. And it just became overwhelming for him. And so uh, if you're out there, especially like you pastors out there who we know, listen, feeling this, like that whole 70% had nobody to talk to, had no friend like that just can't be because that's where things just spiral out of control. But also even beyond pastors, just this idea that good Christians, quote unquote, shouldn't be depressed, shouldn't. Uh, have anxiety or shouldn't even have suicidal thoughts. Uh, I'm glad that that seems to that perception seems to be going away. That's my perception of it within the church, but there's still a long way to go because when you add shame to it, that's just gasoline onto the fire. And so uh, I would encourage those who feel like they're struggling. Um, you know, we always say to reach out to somebody, but that could be really hard. So again, be watching for people in your life that maybe you can reach out to who may be struggling right now. Yeah, and she gives a couple of other, I think, helpful pointers. And again, it's a much longer article. And I've not read the book, Cards on the Table, but it sounds like this is the kind of book, too, that I, I would really encourage people to at least consider reading with, especially if you feel like this is a subject matter that you don't know much about. But she said it can be easy to minimize it in your own mind and think it's no big deal and try to shrug it, shrug it off, but it's real. Invite someone to share that pain with you. Invite friends, professionals, and family into your pain. You do not have to carry it alone. Keep reaching out for help. Ask God to teach you how to live with the pain. Then it goes on, say, to those living with someone struggling with mental illness, she encouraged patience, grace, and transparency. Mm. She expressed regret over failing to welcome more people into her pain, causing her to feel, quote, extremely isolated and alone, and then reiterates, you don't have to carry it all by yourself. Make room for self-care. Find ways to fill yourself up so that you can keep pouring out. You cannot keep caring for somebody that's struggling with a mental illness if you're not caring for yourself. I think that was a really important other angle that is often missed in the bigger discussion regarding mental health and suicide. So either way, that article is over on our Facebook page, and uh, we would love to know what you think, what resources maybe that you found helpful, and please, 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 Uh, reach out if you are someone who feels like uh, you could really use some help. Coming up next, I I almost didn't do this one because I'll be curious to know what people think, Uh, but the headline simply reads, women read the Bible more than men. Why is that? That's coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. National No Rhyme Nor Reason Day to you, Brian. Well, and also to you. That is uh, that is another random one. I love this. like the highlight of the show for me when you find this. That's discouraging that the highlight of our two-hour show is me rattling off the random yeah. holidays that today is. I think just, that maybe says something about the depth of our content, perhaps. 
it's just that there's no rhyme or reason to them, you know? So it makes for a good day. I can hear how big you're smiling right now. <laughs> and I don't appreciate it. <laughs> can I just can I tell you my dad joke of the day today? That my kids roll their eyes at me so much. And today was my younger two kids' first day of school. So they went into school for the day for like two hours today, but then they're doing remote learning, you know? And so I walked up to my daughter. Uh, she's going into sixth grade, starting sixth grade today. And I walked up to her with the TV remote in my hands. And I go, Emily, you know what I'm doing? Remote learning. And she just walked away. <laughs> I am with her entirely in her choice. It's of getting worse. I am like that commercial where they're like trying to teach dads how not to act like dads all the time. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Raise your hand, listening audience, if you're surprised by anything Brian just said. Anybody? Nope. <laughs> Nope, crickets. Okay. So um, good. All right. So this article out of Christianity Today by Haley Gray Scott says, women read the Bible more than men. Uh, Best-selling study authors and Bible teachers unpack the factors that drive women to prioritize time in Scripture. This one, I, I don't know why something in me thinks this one might make people upset, but I, okay. th I think the conversation is an interesting one, and I don't think that we've ever really – ever really had anything that resembles this conversation. So why don't, why don't you get us into it and uh, we'll pick it apart a little. Yeah, it begins with the story of Anne Graham Lotz and uh, how uh, she keeps centered on scripture. But then jumping down, it says this, Lotz's commitment to daily time in the word reflects the Bible engagement habits of many American women. The Pew Research Center's religious landscape study reports that among evangelical Protestants, 66% of women read scripture at least once a week compared to 58% of men. Mm. While these Bible reading habits may involve engaging with scripture during the, a church service or midweek Bible study, women also outpace men when it comes to engaging with scripture outside of church. According to the 2017 Baylor Religion Survey, 36% of Christian women spend weekly or daily time alone reading the Bible compared to 29% of Christian men. The 2020 State of the Bible Survey, commissioned by the American Bible Society and conducted by Barna, also finds that women are more scripture engaged than men. It reports that more than half of American women, 52%, are, quote, Bible friendly, Bible engaged or Bible centered compared to 47% of American men. The researchers use the term Bible friendly to describe those who interact with the Bible consistently engaged uh, or ones who interact with the Bible frequently centered describe those whose frequent interactions with scripture transform not just their relationships, but their choices. The ABS report also notes that African-Americans are more scripture engaged than other racial and ethnic groups. Uh, among black Christians, Pew reports a similar gender difference of 64% of black Christian women read the Bible at least once a week compared to 56% of black Christian men. So I think the article is going to get into some of their thoughts into this, but uh, two questions for you. One, do these numbers surprise you? And, and two, you, you a couple times there said that this article might make you a little uncomfortable, might have a lot of opinion. I'm curious why you believe that as well. I don't know why I think that it's just one of those things that I feel like uh, people could potentially feel defensive about or like, hey, not not all men or not all women or, or whatever. Right, I don't right. I don't know. That's maybe misplaced caution. But what I find interesting here when they kind of get into the why. So Sandra Glan, a Dallas Theological Seminary professor and Bible study author, said that more women read for one thing. So just in general. So it isn't just simply. Um, right. Women read the Bible. They just read in general. She says, we've known that for a long time. There are lots of theories as to why, but more women are buying books of any kind. So it's not just mm -hmm. reading the Bible more. It's reading more in general. And apparently that's cross platforms and that's cross styles. So 
It says, generally speaking, women and girls do tend to read more than men and boys. According to gender differences in reading and writing achievement in American psychologists, females read more than males in almost every developed country. Isn't that interesting? From girlhood, females also read more thoroughly and have greater reading comprehension than males. Let me read that again. I don't think I got that. Just kidding. Uh, (laughs) Although most gender differences in cognitive abilities are considered small, trivial, or statistically insignificant, the differences in reading achievement exceeds the threshold for non-trivial gender difference effect sizes. In simpler terms, the differences in language and reading between men and women are large enough to be significant and meaningful habits of frequent and thorough reading that women bring to other texts are likely an influential factor in women's scripture engagement. I don't surprise by any of that. Does that strike you as like, yep, I, I would have predicted that. I would have guessed so. It's, it's really? a lot of the same as all those statistics we see about just church attendance, right? Uh, these, these statistics almost mirror church attendance. Uh, and it, a hard thing about this article is like, you might be out there going, that's not my, um, that's not uh, my reality. And and this is more painting with a broad brush, right? Like this is more speaking in generality. So there's part of this article that's going to talk about in general, culturally, uh, women have more flexible schedules than men. You might hear that and be really mad, but they're talking in generalities and that that could play into it. But it, it does go back to the age old question as, as pastors, not just, um, the, you know, how do we engage everybody to read scripture, but there is, I know a lot, there, there's been a lot of writing that's happened, I would say in the last 10 or 15 years, specifically, how do you engage men more? Um, but yeah, these are interesting. I, and and um, I don't have good reason for it. I do think it might be as simple as women do tend to read more than men. What that Baylor, uh, I think she was from Baylor professor said, or Dallas Theological Seminary, I'm sorry, professor said, um, but it doesn't let men off the hook. Man, we need to be uh, men who are reading the Bible, who are in the word and who are loving it instead of just going, ah, I don't really like to read books or I don't have much margin in my life. Yeah. Uh, we've we've got to kind of break those walls down. Yeah, Christine Kane, who's the founder of the uh, A21 campaign and Propel Women, posits another reason American women are so highly committed to Bible reading. She says, is it because there are not opportunities for women to serve widely within a local church context? I thought that was interesting. In its Christian Women Today study in 2012, the Barna Group referred to women as, quote, the backbone of U.S. Christian churches. I've certainly seen that at play. I think uh, that paired with, you know, again, in some context, you know, it's a little different here in Chicagoland than maybe other regions of the country. But uh, I, I've been really, I mean, even just they, li- they list a, a, a number of women authors from Lifeway. It talks about uh, Beth Moore, Priscilla Shire, yeah. Kelly Minter, Lisa Turkurst. Jen Wilkin, Angie Smith, Lisa Harper, among their top selling writers, which, again, I, I think is really, really there's a whole other kind of side to this, because when you like look at a general sermon, if I were just to pull one out of a hat, Brian, what would you say would be the ratio of male to female theologians you're quoting? That I'm quoting? Yeah. Oh, uh, it's usually <laughs> it's usually older white guys because that tends to be what my bookshelf is. Right. And so, uh, yeah, we've talked about that before. It tends to be uh, the John Piper and Tim Kellers of the world for sure. Well, we'd love to know what you think, uh, because there's a whole lot more to this article and some other some other guesses as to why this is. But uh, I, I do feel like it's a kind of tricky topic and one that I think is is pretty fascinating. That's up on our Facebook page as usual. And we'd love for you to weigh in there. Coming up next from Michael Frost, coronavirus has unveiled the liturgical poverty of evangelicals. That's coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. 
Hi, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. A couple other holidays I didn't talk to you about, so I typically only read the, like, bizarre ones, but it's World Peace Day in Germany. Nice. It is Knowledge and Literature Day in Armenia. Wow. Okay. It is Constitution Day in Slovakia. Happy day for the Slovakians out there. Independence Day for Uzbekistan. Ooh, big day there. And commencement day of Eritrean armed struggle in Eritrea. So, yeah, I put up my tree this morning. Okay, I don't. <laughs> it's probably best I not respond to that. Okay, so uh, Michael Frost, he's someone we've referenced a couple times on the show, right? Are people familiar with Michael Frost and his work? Do I got to say anything there? No, he's a friend of the show. Friends. You, is this how you treat just general friendships? Like if you see someone at the grocery store for the first time, you're like, we're friends now. Second time. The second time that has is, to be more than one. That is one step away from from stalker, Brian. I think that is. Yeah. 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 You, you seem you seem like you're lamenting that. Like, yeah, totally. I, yeah, 100%. I'm right right there in the vein of stalker. Uh, <laughs> so he, he wrote an article at his personal blog, MikeFrost.net. Yep. Coronavirus has unveiled the liturgical poverty of evangelicals. He says, if I have to go to another church service and turn to the people around me to discuss something or other, I think I'll cry. Seriously. Is that all we've got in this period of lockdown zoom breakouts and socially distanced group work without the singing or the preaching evangelical church services just resemble a staff development day. Why are evangelicals so impoverished when it comes to Christian liturgy to answer that we need to define that highly contested and notoriously slippery term evangelical one historian once quipped that an evangelical christian was quote anyone who likes billy graham <laughs> but uh, when billy graham was asked to define the term in the late 1980s he replied actually that's a question i'd like to ask somebody too it turned out that the world's most famous evangelical couldn't describe uh, the term either one thing we can say about the term evangelical is that it's got a lot to do with the love of words the term itself derives from the greek evangelion meaning gospel or good news so technically evangelical refers to a person church organization that believes and is devoted to the message that jesus christ is the king and savior of humanity in other words a believer of god's word but things evolve over time the reformers use this latinized form of the word evangelium to describe the non-catholic churches birthed by the protestant reformation in the 1500s these were Christians who read the word for themselves and believed in justification based on the individual's faith, not the church's, oh boy, what's that word? Imprimatur? Imprimatur, sure. Sure. Later, during the Great Awakening, evangelicalism became synonymous with revivalism, thank, uh, thanks to the hellfire and brimstone preaching of Jonathan Edwards and George, Whitf- George Whitfield, which led to the movement being marked by an emphasis on preaching the word and converting outsiders. Then in the 1970s, evangelicals took to referring to themselves as, quote, born-again Christians, signifying that an evangelical wasn't just someone who believed the right words, but in whose heart the word lived and reigned. Uh, one thing has consistently defined evangelicals throughout their history is their distrust of liturgy. While liturgies can be word-based prayers, recitations, benedictions, chants, etc., for the most part, the term is used to describe religious rituals. The term itself is a combination of laos, people, and ergon, work, and refers to the public work or practices of the people or done on behalf of the people to appease the gods. We had a, a great conversation yesterday with Aaron Nequist, who is a liturgist and a worship pastor and a podcaster and an author. And we actually spent three segments kind of unpacking a little bit about, you know, why, why evangelicals have so often distrusted liturgy and some of the richness 
found in liturgy. I'll just on the pause right there. Do you are you tracking with what he's saying? What do you agree, disagree with his his take so far? I do. And I mean, Frost tends to be a lot more um, strongly worded or prophetic. Uh, and so he could come out pretty harsh. But I, my first thought until you mentioned it was just like, man, this is exactly what we talked to Aaron Nequist about yesterday. Yeah. And I left that conversation. If you haven't heard it, we had him for, you know, like 45 minutes or so. Go find it on the podcast. I think it was 26 minutes. Oh, well, there you go. 26 <laughs> minutes. If you add in the commercials. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Uh, I would say go back and listen to that if you missed it. But um, I really left there challenged and encouraged by what Aaron had to say about just kind of thinking about liturgy and that we all have a liturgy. Like Frost isn't wrong here. And this is what Aaron was saying yesterday. The evangelical church has a liturgy. We sing this many songs. We preach a sermon. We do this. Frost says, stand up and you know talk to the person next to you, whatever else it might be. Uh, but that picture that that Aaron Nequist said yesterday about starting to view the worship service as a journey and and what role does liturgy play in that? What role? How do we help people as a community along in that journey? I just found really, really helpful. And so, uh, yeah, Frost is great. He's awesome at just doing background and where we've come, how we got to this point. But I do think COVID has uh, particularly uh, made the evangelical liturgy a difficult one to keep going. It's I think we're all struggling with that. So, so what do you mean by that phrase, evangelical liturgy? Because my my guess is that some somebody might hear that and think, no, 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 I, I don't have liturgy. That's why I'm an evangelical. Yep, I think it was at least in the in kind of the understanding that uh, again to keep bringing up that Aaron Nequist had in our conversation yesterday that there is speaking of liturgy that there is a kind of a rhythm to our services, right? That we uh, we kind of do this kind of song, this many songs we preach. Uh, we, we, here's another way to think of it. When we go into an evangelical church, we kind of know what to expect. Uh, if you've been in evangelical churches for a while. And so that's kind of the evangelical liturgy. I know we don't have, you know, we don't have books for it and all this kind of stuff, but I think, uh, the same way that again, I, that's why I appreciate talking to people like we did with Aaron yesterday, because it helps kind of open my eyes as a pastor to like, okay, uh, liturgy in kind of a loose sense already plays a role in our services. So how do we, how do we think that through, uh, in kind of a more deep way? Yeah. Let me just read how he ends it here. He says, I understand the evangelical anxiety about practices or symbols becoming objects of worship in themselves. I share that same anxiety. I also don't want rituals performed by rote long after they've lost their initial power and meaning. But could it be that this global pandemic will force evangelicals to face up to their limited views of worship and recover such ancient Christian practices as the use of religious symbols and imagery, the recitation of prayers and congregational responses, the use of candles and incense and fasting and feast days? If you're an evangelical, you might not think your church is up for adopting the yearly liturgical calendar just yet. Most evangelicals would blanch at the use of antiphons, oh boy, contakia or traparia, Look them up. Okay, I'm glad he said that because I have no idea. But instead <laughs> of having congregants simply sitting, listening, and observing, why not incorporate active worship practices like reciting, responding, sitting, standing, kneeling, to which I would add personally a big amen. He says, is it unevangelical to kneel in contrition? Am I in danger of losing my dissenting credentials if I recite written prayers or confess my sins or light a candle or walk a labyrinth? And of course, please let us linger over the communion meal. Don't cover it up with blankets of explanatory words. Let us taste God's grace in Christ, our friend and king who is never far from us, even if we're being kept far from each other for a time. I think that was 
that's a deeply convicting but important poetic way to end. As someone who you and I are probably in the types of churches that, structurally speaking, look pretty similar. I'm wondering now, in light of this article and maybe the conversation with Aaron yesterday, is there any kind of – any sort of shift a Bruin in Brian Fromm's brain or heart at all? I think what I've been wrestling with is the exact phrase he used yesterday when he said he started to view the Sunday morning worship time and planning it as I'm taking my church on a journey. And and yeah. to think of that as opposed to what are the three songs we're going to sing? What am I preaching on? It requires some intentionality and also forward thinking that I'm not always very good at. And so you get stuck in the, hey, man, let's just do these three songs. I'll preach. Let's do this. You know, that becomes part of the problem. But that imagery of, hey, let's go on a journey, and then what are the elements that are going to help us in that journey together, I thought was a pretty interesting way to think about it. Yeah, totally agree. Coming up next, the uh, John MacArthur saga continues. Apparently, yeah. L.A. County has uh, has booted them from the parking lot that they've leased for almost half a century. That and more is coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey everyone, welcome back to The Common Good for the last time today. I got two articles. I'm probably being a little optimistic. I'm going to try and get to both of them. The first is more newsy, and the second, Scott Saul's friend of the show, kind of offers some more, <laughs> I think, pastoral wisdom, and I kind of wanted to yep. end the show with that tone in particular. So why, why don't you get us into the newsy one first, and then we'll transition into Saul's. Yeah, John MacArthur who uh, is, feels like he is in the news every day now, at least, at least a couple times a week. Uh, he, he, We read this at uh, Christian Headlines, L.A. County boots uh, Grace Community Church off parking lot at least for 45 years. Los Angeles County is terminating a 45-year-old parking lot lease with Grace Community Church, that's John MacArthur's church, and has given the congregation 30 days to vacate the space. In an action, the church supporters say is retaliation for recent defiance of COVID-19 health restrictions. Grace Community pays the county approximately uh, $8,301 per month for the park. Wow. For the parking lot and has leased it continually since 1975. The County Department of Public Works sent a letter dated August 28th to the church saying the L.A. County Flood Control District is exercising its right to terminate the agreement by giving a minimum 30-day written notice. Uh, please be advised that by this notice, the district will hereby terminate the agreement effective October the 1st. Uh, if Grace fails to vacate the premise as required, the district may enter the premises and remove Grace's personal property in accordance with the agreement. And so it's just more of the messiness of the story. So John MacArthur kind of says, we're not going to listen to what the government's telling us. And now, as the government tends to do, says, well, we're going to come take uh, back what's ours. Uh, and it keeps going. So it'll be interesting to see where this plays out. Um, you know, this seems petty on the government's part, but some of the stuff John MacArthur has done has seemed um, a little uh, troublesome as well. And so probably not a surprise that it's gone this route. I, I mean, I'm a little surprised, but uh, maybe, it does feel petty, doesn't maybe it? Maybe that's just me being being homeschooled. OK, so being homeschooled. <laughs> Scott Stalls, I'm going to transition to his. So his headline reads gathering for worship. In a COVID-19 age, convictions and some lessons learned. I'm going to read a little bit. And uh, this is usually the case with Saul's. I kind of just wish we could read the whole article. What he said seems so timely and so centered. He's he's not afraid to kind of poke either side of the coin. But I don't know. I think I just think he speaks with a lot of clarity. It says in late July, the U.S. Supreme Court rejected a Nevada church's request to soften in-person crowding restrictions. The church's case centered around fairness. If restaurants and casinos can legally fill their rooms to 50% capacity, why can't 
worshiping congregations currently limited to much smaller gatherings do the same. In a four to five split decision, the court denied the church's request. More recently, a California megachurch issued a public statement of noncompliance to similar state restrictions. According to the statement, the church will, quote, not be acquiesced to a government-imposed moratorium on our weekly congregational worship. Following its release, videos went viral of a packed sanctuary with thousands of worshipers, no social distancing, only a handful of masks, and a pastor remarking with notable sarcasm, welcome to our peaceful protest. His words were followed by roaring applause, and more recently, the same pastor was featured on a video telling his congregation there is no pandemic. The separation of church and state has long been a core value of our nation. The principle originated with the idea of religious freedom, allowing believers to practice their faith openly and without fear of state interference. As a Christian minister, which is a good reminder, by the way, Scott is an actual pastor, I embrace the separation principle. However, I do not believe that the Supreme Court or the states of Nevada and California have violated it. The Supreme Court's uh, Nevada ruling is problematic, in my opinion, not because it overprotects congregations, but because it underprotects those who frequent restaurants and casinos. Wherever lives are at risk, it is always the state's duty to protect. The California church's public statement also seems problematic because it makes rightful government protection for wrongful government intrusion. In California alone, there have already been over 10,000 deaths from COVID-19. Furthermore, one suspects that if the Sunday morning invader was a hostile criminal instead of a hostile virus, the church would welcome government involvement. As a Christian minister, I understand firsthand why church people dislike gathering restrictions. Like casinos and restaurants, schools and concert venues, sports stadiums and protest rallies, a congregation's ability to thrive depends on people meeting together in crowds. The practice of faith is as much public as it is personal. This is why the Bible is adamant that congregations not forsake the habit of worshiping together. He's quoting Hebrews 10 there. But in a global pandemic, our worshiping congregations must also take great care how we gather. We shouldn't have to be told to practice protective behavior by governing authorities because we should already be on board. Faithful protest or, quote, speaking truth to power is virtuous, right, and called for if the state is doing harm to its citizens. But when the state is aiming to protect the lives of its citizens, Christians should be the first in line to offer their enthusiastic support. And he references Romans 13, 1 through 7 there. I'll stop there. He's got a lot more to say, but uh, what do you yeah. think so far? I, in classic Scott Saul's fashion, he's laid out the issues really well. Uh, because as a Christian minister, as he says, and I know you and I feel this, we so long to be together. Like, And your church and my church are in different spots and how we're doing it, size and whatever right. else. But but we all long for it to be as it was on March 1st, where it was just all of us crammed in as close as we could be, hugging each other, singing together. Like everybody wants that. The question is what's safe right now and what's also right right now as yeah. it pertains to the government restrictions. And I understand the frustrations, believe me, around whether it be other types of gatherings and that that seem to be allowed to go on right now. Like there are some things that are problematic, but um, I don't think it's helpful to take the MacArthur stance that just says, A, there's no pandemic and B, the government can't do anything to stop us. Uh, I just don't think that's 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 um, that's very pastoral. That's very um, wise. And so I, I really do appreciate Saul's just saying, I want to be with my people, but let's have the bigger conversation here yeah. and just be honest about what's going on culturally right now. Yeah, let me just read a little more from his article. He says, the, uh, the reality of religious freedom is not a license to assert our freedom. To the contrary, true religious freedom is a freedom to love, serve, and bless God and others. 
This often requires us to lay aside our own rights for others' sake, just as Christ laid aside his for our sake. According to Oxford scholar and Christian C.S. Lewis, quote, if you read history, you will find that the Christian who did most for the present world were precisely those who thought most of the next. Said differently, the more heavenly minded we are, the more earthly good we will be. For this reason, Christians have always been active, first in ongoing responders to the vulnerability of widows, orphans, the disabled, immigrants and refugees, minorities, abuse victims, the elderly and the poor. In a global pandemic, it's also notable that history's first hospital was founded by St. Jerome, a Christian minister and backed by Christian funding. Centuries later, thousands more hospitals have emerged, many of which are named after a saint. The worship of God and upholding human health, both soul and body, again, go hand in hand. And I'll just end with this. The prophet Isaiah wrote that Messiah would forgive our sins and heal our diseases. Christ calls himself a doctor as he heals souls and also bodies, including those afflicted with leprosy, blindness, paralysis, hemophilia, fever, starvation, and other maladies. His disciples touched and prayed for the sick that God might heal them. The gospel writer Luke was a medical doctor. Concerning plague-infected citizens, one Roman emperor complained that Christians cared better for Rome's sick than Rome did. I know we're all out of time, Brian, but just give us give us a nice bow at the end of all that. What do we what do we do with what Saul's is saying here? I think uh, what Saul's is saying is to remind us that there's a, this is a complex issue. But if you remember when we started all of this back in March, April with the COVID nineteen. I do remember all we talked about was uh, it's the role of the Christ follower to love their neighbor. And there's so much in the COVID-19 pandemic we can do to love our neighbor. And we've lost a little bit of steam at that. <laughs> like that, that feels less compelling these days. And so I think Saul's and others, Andy Stanley last week, who we listened to, it's a good reminder that we are still called after all these months to love our neighbor. And that even needs to play into our decision making about how we love our neighbor by how we're meeting and how we're doing church. And so let's not lose sight of that as Christ followers that that's still our calling to the community. That's a good word, man. And this is posted up on our Facebook page. As always, we would love to know what you think. And as always, and we don't say it enough, we're praying for you guys. We love you guys. If there's ever anything that we can do to help, please don't hesitate to shoot us a message. For Brian Fromm, my name is Ian Simpkins, and you've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life.